Well, greetings, brethren. Glad to see so many of you here. It's a great thing to have people come from all over the country, as you have done, and we appreciate it and the effort you put in to be here. And I hope the love and the warmth and the fellowship of the brethren will be encouraging to you. So we are grateful, and I want to thank all of you for the wonderful help, the prayers, the loyalty that you have shown to God's work. So many of you have been very, very loving and helpful in many, many different ways, and I certainly do appreciate it. I'm sure all of us do. And I personally want to thank you, brethren, for the love, the cards, the emails, the flowers, the candy. I think someone even gave us candy. All kinds of encouragement that you've given me since my wife's recent illness and death. And I do appreciate it. I want to thank you for it. It's been a very, very hard time for me, as you can imagine, because I'm older. When my first wife died, I was just 45 years old, and now I'm 83, so it's harder for me. Dr. Amy Shumway sitting back there. She's a noted chiropractor. She met me in the elevator. She's Mr. Shumway's daughter, and, and she, she works on people to get them well. She said, you need eight hugs every day, eight hugs every day. So all you pretty girls, you can understand that. <laughs> I'm old enough to hug. I'm safe. I, I, I can't run away with anybody now. <laughs> I can't even run. So it's safe. Anyway, I got several hugs. I got a hug from my granddaughter, Jim's daughter. And then I got a hug from Amy and from her sister and some others. So I'm about halfway there. So don't all of you hug me. It might break my back. And then Dr. Shumway would have to work on me again. But anyway, she didn't work on me. She just told me that. But anyway, it's good to get eight hugs a day, and that's the way to help. Have an apple a day and all those kinds of things. Well, I do want to thank you so much, and I think all of you know that I cannot possibly write, call, or thank all of you personally. Frankly, I was kind of out of it during that time my wife was dying. I was hurting. People were coming and going, the hospice nurses, and I can't even remember everyone who sent every flowers pot. I, I should have. I should have had someone there taking notes. But I want you to understand that. I just was disconglomerated, as we say. So I hope you'll understand that. I did read almost every card, though. I spent several evenings reading them. They were very touching. The cards that you've written, we had cards from New Zealand and Australia and South Africa and Britain and around the world. And I do appreciate it very, very much. And I certainly appreciate the love, the loyalty, and the family spirit which all of you show. Thank you. I'm thanking you in person. I really mean it. One more thing. I maybe should mention this, but I will. I'm still hurting, so I will appreciate it. I don't need any more cards. <laughs> I certainly don't need any more candy. <laughs> but I will appreciate your prayers. They say that after a mate dies, it takes four to six months to sort of get over it. You never totally get over it, but I will appreciate your prayers because it does hurt very, very much. Cheryl was a very beautiful person, and I loved her. And when I look around the house, every now and I think of something that she left or I see a picture of her or something, and it comes back again. So this will go on for months, I know. So I will appreciate your prayers, and I will appreciate it if you will pray very, very much. For Mr. Bonjour, whose wife just died, Mr. Dan Hall, and many others who are hurting, Mr. Jack Lowe down in, in Atlanta, and many others have lost mates. So pray for them all. They need it. We all need it in that way. But brethren, as my own life draws to a close, 
I'm not trying to die tomorrow, by the way, but I am older, so I'm putting it that way. As my own life draws to a close, I do want to give you certain things in a certain way that perhaps I can do while I'm still here, certain key things that in my 64 years in God's church and 61 years in the ministry, I've been able to observe. They're not new things, but something I just want to impress on your minds while I have the opportunity. Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 90. It's one of the very few psalms that was written by Moses, as it notes in your Bible, and apparently this is a historical fact from what I've read in the commentaries. Moses wrote this psalm. Psalm 90. Eternal, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth or ever you formed the earth and the world. Even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man to destruction and say, Return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past, and like a watch in the night. In the eyes of the eternal God who looks across the universe, who created everything that we know, the entire cosmos, the sun, the moon, the stars, a thousand years are like yesterday when it is past. We think in very short segments of time, but God doesn't. And to us, six months is a long time, or a year or two, but not in God's sight. And as we become closer to God, we'll perhaps understand the way He looks at things and why He allows things to happen. It hurt me profoundly to have my wife die, but I realized that could happen. I realized that others of our older brethren were beginning to die, and I told the headquarters church, and let me say to many of you visitors here, Except for childhood injuries or childbirth problems or, or accidents, most people on the earth do die between about 65 and 85. A few die before 65, and a few live past 85. But the vast majority die right in that range, and most of the people I'm talking about did that. If you die just a few years before 70, what if God said you're going to die at age 70? So when your 70th birthday would approach, you'd say zero minus 10. Zero minus 10, you know, news minus you'd, you'd think, wow, I'm going to drop over in a few days. God doesn't do that. He lets some of us die a few years before 70. And he lets many today, like, live growing up to 75 or 80. And a few of us live beyond 80. As Dr. Ralph E. Merrill said, he was the first college physician in Ambassador College, a very good friend of Mr. Armstrong. He was one of the most aristocratic doctors we've ever had. I don't mean that in a wrong way, but the right way. He had a great deal of, of, of professional and gentlemanly bearing. He got his doctorate from Harvard University, but he moved out to Glendale, California, had his own private practice there, was very successful. But God called him into his church early on. He was one of the pioneer members. But he said, when you live past age 70, you're living on borrowed time. And that's true. Those of us past 70 are blessed in the sense we're living on borrowed time. We're living past the normal three score and ten because 3,000 years ago, King David died old and full of days at age 70. And I've already outlived that time for 13 years. So I have everything to be thankful for. And many of you here, I see my friend Mrs. Murray, I'm having to think of her new name always, <laughs> I'm nodding. But she and I are both 
past 83 now, and I don't think she'll mind me saying that. She's at the point she doesn't care, and I've known her a long time. I don't think she'll hit me with her cane. She has a cane, too. <laughs> but we've been friends for a long time. We've both been blessed with an extra 13 years. You carried them away like a flood. They are like a sleep. In the morning they grow like grass. In the morning it flourishes, it grows up, and the evening it is cut down and withers. Verse 7, For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we are terrified. Moses went through a lot of things. God warned Moses, and when Moses apparently struck the rock, and in a sense probably yelled at God, not just touched the rock once, but really got vehement about it. God took away his opportunity to go into the promised land. He knew the power of God as well as the love of God. And God is powerful. We can't mess around with God. I think a lot of you younger people need to realize that. You've grown up in an age when the whole society kind of makes fun of God. And they have all kinds of jokes all the time about Jonah swallowing the whale rather than the whale swallowing Jonah. And it wasn't a whale anyway. God does not ever use the term whale. There was a big fish created especially by God for that purpose. Is the creator of the sun, the moon, and the stars able to make a special fish? Is that so unusual? Of course it's not. The great God that gives us life and breath is able to do everything. But that God has anger. That God is a righteous God. And we've got to fear God in a right way. We really should have the awe of God. And that's the beginning of understanding. It's the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. All three of those are used in the book of Proverbs. The fear of God. The awe of God. Most Americans don't even begin to start to commence to have that anymore. They've lost that. And you younger people need to realize that. They're making fun of God. They're making fun of Christians. They're making fun of everything we stand for over and over and over again on television. They have a clever way of doing it. Some of their jokes are kind of funny if you don't realize the real spirit behind the jokes. They're put together in a clever way. Satan is not dumb. He's smart. But he has a vile type of cleverness, a diabolic cleverness. So anyway, we need to realize the power of God. For all our days have been passed away in your wrath. We finish our years with a sigh. The days of our lives are 70 years. And if by reason of strength they are 80 years, their boast is only labor and sorrow. For it is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? For as the fear of you, so is your wrath. So teach us to number our days. This is the main part I want you to remember. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And brethren, all of us who are older have probably started doing that already. And I hope we'll keep on. But you who are younger, don't think that you're going to live forever. When I was 18 and 19 years old, I worked as a lumberjack out in Oregon. Two different summers. I guess the summer I was 18 and then the summer I was 20 years old. I went back again. I took chances the professional lumberjacks wouldn't take. They had me walking out with an axe in one hand and a 40-pound chainsaw and the little log going way out over a cliff. And I stupidly did that. Can you go out there and come? Like, yeah, I can do that. And I did. But they had sense enough not to do that. <laughs> They'd been around a while. They knew that every young whippersnapper didn't necessarily make it. 
but I thought I was indestructible. I, I felt sorry for a man named Hoyle years ago in the headquarters church because he died. And I talked to Dr. Herman Hay, who was a little older and been around a little longer. I said, Herman, why did God let Mr. Hoyle die? And I remember Herman's answer is very simple. He said, well, he was 84 years old. Oh, <laughs> is that strange? No, it's just simple. When you get past three score and ten, you die at some point. You don't live forever in this flesh. God does not promise us eternal life. But instead of feeling sorry for Mr. Hoyle, just a few years later, my dear friend Richard David Armstrong, Mr. Armstrong's older son, was killed and crushed to death almost in an automobile accident at 29. 29. He didn't even make it to age 30. And it helped me realize then, young people, that young people could die very quickly. Your, your, your whole world just ends all of a sudden. If you take unnecessary chances, if you are not close to God. So you have to understand that. Our life is very short. And we need to make every day count. You don't need to just push yourself and drive yourself unduly. But you do need to make every day count. Does your life count? What will be the epitaph on your gravestone? This is a man who really accomplished something. This is a woman of God who served others in a magnificent way. You have to think about that. What does your life mean? What does your life mean? What will you have accomplished when you die? So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And I hope all of us can do this as we go along and that God will help us. We can have worldly gains. They're not wrong to have a good business and make money, and especially if we share that money with our family and loved ones and with God's work and seek first the kingdom of God and all those things, that's fine. We can have good musical talent, and we can help others and encourage them. That's a good thing. We can be an outstanding athlete and set some records. That's a good thing. I was a boxing champion, as some of you know, in the Golden Gloves back in high school, but I was really not built for boxing. My best sport was running the mile, and I was a champion miler and the best miler in my high school all three years. One year I ran the best mile of a high school student in the state of Missouri, but I later realized after I was converted, as I used to come into the finish line in Joplin High School Memorial Stadium, or what it was called out there, it was very exciting because I knew that Rosemary Wadley and Janet Babb and Catherine Ditson, and all the pretty girls were going to be up there yelling, I'm going to win this mile, you know, all this thing for vanity. And when I got back to the finish line, where was I? Right back where I started. <laughs> I was just more tired. <laughs> so you have to think about that. When you accomplish something in this life, in this physical life, what does it really mean? Unless it has lasting value unless you've accomplished something of absolute worth that will last a long, long time. J. Paul Getty, who was about 50 or 70 years ago, called the richest man in the world. He had a lot of oil wells and other wealth. They have the Getty Museum, as some of you know, and out in Los Angeles and other things he's bought or endowed around the world. In his time, he was a billionaire, and in today's money, had all kinds of money, all kinds of palaces and, and artworks and so on, yachts, ships, airplanes, everything. 
He said, I would give every dime I've ever earned if I could only have one good marriage. Just one good marriage. A woman that really loved me would be faithful to me and take care of me and that I could love, I hope he thought, and be faithful to. One good marriage. And I think he meant that. I think he meant that. He lived long enough to realize that money does not make you happy. It just does not. So you have to realize what kind of wealth are you laying up. J. Paul Getty didn't lay up the right kind of wealth at all. He didn't have a good marriage. He didn't have a good family. And we are sorry for him. But you need to build a good family. All of you realize how important a family is. Now that my wife is dead, my son Jim and his wife, David and his wife, my son Jonathan, who lives here in this area, and my daughters, Elizabeth and Rebecca, my family is trying to take care of me, and I deeply, deeply appreciate that. My son Mike down in, in, uh, in Florida has called and encouraged me too and came up and spent Thanksgiving with us just at the time of my wife's death. They've all tried to show love and concern, and I appreciate that. Some people have no family. Their family is all fractured. Our family is not perfect, but we've had a fairly good family, and I'm so grateful for that. As I'm older and my wife is gone, the importance of a family, who will be there to take care of you, who's going to care if you die or don't die or this kind of thing. And most important, the whole idea is God himself is building a family and building your family, building your family and the strength of your family is something that is like God. And God wants you to learn to do that and learn the lessons of life of giving and helping and serving and forgiving. You have to learn not just to give, but to forgive, forgive each other, forgive each other, forgive each other every day, every week, if you're going to be in a happy marriage. Very important. Another key thing you need to think about, of course, and perhaps the most important thing of all, is character. That all ties in with all these things I'm telling you, but if you have the character of God, and you need to think about that aspect, of course, that I've commented on so many times, what's my favorite verse in the Bible? Galatians 2 and verse 20. It's the best one verse. The whole Bible is, is absolutely important, but it's the best one verse definition of Christianity in the Bible where Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I. And the Greek word here is ego, literally, not the ego, not the selfish self, but the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of and the Greek is in the possessive there. It's not always that way. Just two places in the Bible like that. The faith of Jesus Christ. Not faith in, but the faith of Jesus Christ. Christ's very faith. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of Jesus Christ who loved me and died for me. So you have to think of that. That is the, the goal. That we have Christ living his life in us. And I hope all of us can learn to do that. That is the ultimate character, Christ living in us through his spirit. And we are imitating Christ. We are emulating Christ in everything we think and say and do. There's nothing more important than that in building your legacy, in building the idea of what your life amounted to when you die. Another key thing that the Bible speaks of quite often is the importance of being on Christ's team being on Christ's team and doing your very best in Christ's work today. 
Mr. Armstrong used to say there are two reasons we're called today. Most of you know that. He said that a number of times and I've repeated it. Two main reasons. God could have called you and me in tomorrow's world in the, in the millennium or the great white throne judgment. Why did he call you and me today? He did not call us for personal salvation. He could have called us later on for that. But the special reason he called us now at this time, of course, was first of all, to help prepare to be those kings and priests in tomorrow's world. We have to build that kind of character. We ministers ought to work with you, help you, guide you, inspire you, teach you, and prepare you to be the people of God, to prepare a people of God who at the resurrection can step into that role as kings and priests filled with and led by God's Spirit and through God's extra help. And all of us are going to need a lot of extra help, literally rule over cities and nations and later perhaps planets throughout the entire universe. And we're not just trying to be dramatic. As you know, the scientists tell us there are more galaxies, apparently, than there are people. And how many stars in that galaxy? We don't know in most cases. Massive numbers out there. When you think how Mr. Smith wrote a wonderful article recently about how the greatness of God. He wasn't called that. I forget the title, but I remember some of the examples he gave. How big is the universe? We can't imagine the greatness of God and what God has in store for us. And brethren, an, old, an older evangelist years ago told me, and I appreciate it, he said, Mr. Meredith, he and I were both vice presidents way back then. He said, when all is said and done, it's not going to amount so much to whether we're a vice president or a senior class president or some office in the church. We're going to have so much more power, so much more glory in that coming kingdom of God than we have now than all the little titles and all the little offices we had today will seem like nothing and I mean that nothing by comparison I got to be student body president of ambassador college and I was very proud of that and that's okay Mr. Ames later on got to be student body president and that's fine but you know when you look over the list I'm not going to name the names but I know them of the early five or ten about nine out of ten fell away from the church. They literally left the church. How could they do that? Well, they were called student body president because they were outstanding. They were good speakers and they looked like leaders, but they had ability because they had vanity and they were not completely conquered by God. Mr. Armstrong used to use the expression, how many people in this church are conquered by God? And he thought about half. And near the end of his life, he said several times before the headquarters church, he said, I think it's more like a tithe. One out of ten. And that was probably more accurate when you realize what actually happened. So many people just left. They just fell away. I was deeply disappointed, terribly disappointed that so many fellows and girls that I taught in my Bible classes, so many young ministers that I helped prepare and ordain and was over them in the ministry at times as director of the ministry, they just fell away. I thought, how can they do this? Well, as you go back in the life of each one of them, you can see certain indications of vanity and selfishness and lust and greed, but you can't always pick it out. Only God knows the hearts of men. So we've got to try to think in our own minds and hearts, are we really conquered by God and are we ready for that coming kingdom? But we've got to be willing to be on Christ's team. We've got to be led by Christ to where we yes sir, say, yes, sir, in effect, we'll do what Christ said 
It even says through his human leaders, as long as within God's will. If I tell you or anyone tells you, I don't care who tells you to do something directly contrary, you know, to break God's commandments directly, don't do it. You obey God rather than man. But in any normal human sense, you should try to acquiesce. And if it seems really weird, why go to the minister and say, well, this tell it said, Mr. Meredith says, if it's really weird to come to you. So he'll say, you think I'm weird? No, I don't think you're weird. I'm just doing what Mr. Meredith said. Blame me. <laughs> but it might be then he'll see the picture back down. Maybe his, uh, his uh, instruction is a little bit too much. We can't run your personal lives for you. We shouldn't do that. All the deals. But on the other hand, we're to be part of a team and develop that attitude to where we really submit to one another in the fear of God. We really work together. We love each other. We cooperate. We get a job done as part of God's team today. And God wants that attitude because being part of God's work, being part of God's team now is an absolutely vital thing when you consider what we're going to be doing later on where God puts you out on Alpha Centauri. And you say, well, God's going to tell me something then. No, he may tell you through Doubting Thomas. You know, the apostle is called Doubting Thomas, but maybe Doubting Thomas will have him under me. I will have to report to Doubting Thomas, and you, then I will tell you, or maybe some person under me will tell you, and you say, well, you're not Mr. Meredith, you're not Doubting Thomas, you're not even God, I won't take it from you. Well, God doesn't have to tell you to do everything, if you follow me. You're to say if it comes from God through his chain of command in the right way. In other words, you develop that teamwork, that, that yielded spirit, that cooperation. And that's very, very important that you really do want to be part of the team of God. I want you to notice something now, if you would, about this whole thing. Turn back to Matthew, uh, I mean, back to uh, uh, John, if you would, at this time. John chapter 4. John chapter 4, verse 31. John chapter 4, verse 31. And here is an example that we read real quickly, but I'm going to go over every word of it. So think about it carefully. In the meantime, his disciples urged him when he was talking to this woman, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said, my food, here it is, the Son of God, God in the flesh, my food, my sustenance, my reason for being, my very reason for being, in a sense, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. My reason for being is to finish his work. And that's what Mr. Armstrong tried to do. He did not do it perfectly, but he tried to do it. And I was there along with Mr. Apartheid, and we used to both tell the brethren that, so he was there and we were witness. I don't know any others who are alive or there, but we were there when Mrs. Herbert Armstrong was dying. Mr. Armstrong asked the headquarters evangelist to be there. And as she was dying, literally, she died just a few minutes later, she said, I'm dying. But she said, you men go on and finish the work. That's the important thing. She said, go ahead and finish the work. And that was very meaningful to me. Because the next thing I know, she kind of shuddered, and that was it. She died. And Dr. Parrish was out there from Big Sandy, and he leaped on her like a tiger. And I wasn't expecting that. I liked Dr. Parrish. He was the physician we had at Big Sandy. But I was a guy that always thought I was tough. It wasn't. I wasn't very big, but I was energetic. 
and I was protective of Mrs. Armstrong, and when he leaped on her, I started to leap on him. <laughs> I thought, well, he's hurting her. Well, he couldn't hurt her. She was dead. He had this kind of a funnel thing, and he put it on her chest. He was trying to get her breathing again. That's why he leaped on her. I was just sort of hyper, you know, there, because it was a very emotional time. But she was dead. You finish the work. That's one reason God has called us now. That's why Christ said this. That is my reason for being, my food. The thing that keeps me going is to finish the work. Do not say there is still four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they're already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. So, brethren, we will receive wages. And you young people, many of you young people and you young men may later become ministers, elders, deacons, leaders in the work. I hope you will. I'm not a bit jealous of you at all. In the worldwide, sometimes we had a young man come out and was outstanding, and some of our ministers, I think, were afraid that he was going to take over. I could sense that, and there was that normal feeling of a little bit of jealousy. I'm old enough now that I'm a, one of the chief cheerleaders, as the other men at headquarters know. I'm constantly cheerleading for Mr. Wally Smith. His numbers are already better than anyone except Mr. Ames in the television program. He's passed me, and I have not lost one second sleep because I'm glad he's here. We need younger men. We've got to have them. Some of us are getting old. We can't help it. I'd like to repent of getting old, <laughs> but you can't repent of that. So we're glad for these young men. Mr. Jason Fritz gets up here and does his cheerleading thing. And his, I don't want to make fun of it. It was very good. His, his exuberant sermonette. And he has that in him. And that's very, very good. He has that more than I do because he's so much younger. And he, we need that kind of thing. We've got to have these younger men as they come along. And some of the younger women that are very enthusiastic and very dedicated to God and help and serve in so many ways. So we want you. Christ wants you. And you can do a lot. This work is not going to finish next year or the year after. I don't know how much long we have, but it looks to me like we have at least another 8 or 12 years. You older people might like, not like for me to say that. I know that. The older people say, no, we'll say it tomorrow. No, I'm sorry. There's still several things yet to happen. But if it's 10 more years, just picking the middle number, some of you kids that are just 18 or 20 years old, you're already going to be married and have two or three children. Don't, don't say it's all awful yes you can get married you should build your life but it could be 12 or 15 more years we don't know but if you seek first god's kingdom and you regularly do the things that mr fritz was talking about and i've been talking about for the last 61 years of course really study the bible feed on this book drink in of it study it to where it becomes as familiar as the palm of your hand then you begin to think like god thinks you really do as you study this book. Then pray to God on your knees. Say, Father in heaven, guide me, help me, lead me, teach me, fashion and mold me. Please help me accomplish what you want me to accomplish. Use me as your tool. And then meditate on the Bible. And meditate. Think over and over on those things. And how far have I come? What is my life counting for? Make your life count. Make your life count. And then use the tool of fasting. Seek God in fasting and prayer. Beseeching God to humble you. 
to really teach you every lesson you need to learn so you could be useful and it won't go to your head and you could be humbled, yielded, willing to take correction and be part of Christ's team forever. So these are things we've all got to do more and more. And I hope all of us can really do that and realize our purpose is, of course, to prepare for the kingdom of God and do our part in God's work with all our heart. Jesus Christ was our example. Christ spent his entire life helping, encouraging, healing, blessing, teaching, and building other human beings all day long. You don't find him doing much of anything else once he started his ministry. And he was the ultimate example, of course. He was the ultimate giver. As Mr. Armstrong used to say, you cannot outgive God. God created the heavens and the earth. God is the one that gives you the air you breathe. God is the one that gives you the water you drink. God is give the one who gives you your food, your clothing. God is the one who made us male and female. And most of us who understand are truly thankful for that. Not just for sex. As we get older, that has less importance. But somehow we're made different. We complement each other. A woman is made to be a partner to a man and, and give a type of joy and, and atmosphere around the home that is just invaluable. Once my wife has died, I realize that again more than ever, how wonderful it is to have that kind of a female atmosphere and partner there. That's beautiful. God made us male and female. He made us for each other. How empty the world would be apart from that. So I hope all of you young people can get married and get married not just for sex but for the right reason because you profoundly appreciate the difference between a man and a woman and how we can make each other's life complete and how you men can help and love and protect and encourage and serve this beautiful human being who's willing to put up with you. My wife put up with me for 36 years. Some women would think, boy, that's a great honor to be with Mr. Meredith. Well, you haven't lived with Mr. Meredith. <laughs> you think, boy, he has a lot of drive. You know, I have a lot of drive. Do this, do that, you know. <laughs> so I wasn't easy to live with sometimes, I'm sure. And she had to put up with me for 36 years. And, of course, each of us has to put up with our mate and forgive them and love them and help them. And we ought to do that and learn the lessons of life in every way. Jesus was giving all day long. Turn to Acts chapter 20, brethren, if you would, the 20th chapter of the book of Acts. <clears throat> Often we just read the one verse, but I want to give you a little bit of the context here because Paul said, talking to the Ephesian elders who'd come over to see him for perhaps the last time, he said in verse 26, Acts 20, verse 36, and indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone, preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. And brethren, I think all of you know that we're sincerely trying to do that. We're trying, you know, you go to the average Protestant church, and what they tell you every week, basically the same thing. I grew up in the Methodist church for 19 years and I visited my friends in the Presbyterian and Lutheran or other churches from time to time. And basically it's the same thing. Just love the Lord, be kind, keep the ten, not keep the ten, keep the golden rule, they'll say. And they don't even understand that. They don't tell you all the things of the Bible because they don't know. God has not opened their minds at all. 
but we try to declare you the whole counsel of God to where you learn about God's whole plan through the holy days. You learn about God's whole purpose of making human beings in his very family, full sons of God forever in the kingdom of God. That's why we're to have character, not just because God is nicey-nice. God is not against anything good. God is not against a glass of wine. God is not against sex. He created sex. He wants sex. He wanted men and women to love each other, to marry, and to have children. He just wants to be done in a way that will not hurt you and hurt other human beings and come back on you. So we're to teach you the whole way of God, and we are declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd, what? The church of God. One of the 12 places where the right name is given. The church of God. Not the Lutheran church, not the Methodist church, not the Catholic church. God names things what they are. The true name church should be called by the right name. The church of God which he purchased with his own blood. And brethren, as a side, one thing Mr. Armstrong repented of several times in public, and I have too, we often do not mention the precious blood of Jesus Christ as often as we should. Just because the Protestants go to one extreme, that doesn't mean we have to go to the other extreme. We ought to have a profound feeling for the blood of Jesus Christ that he gave his life to forgive our sins our selfishness, our vanity, our rottenness, our, our hard-headedness. He died for us, poured out his blood. So we want to appreciate that forever. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Some might say, well, boy, back in the Apostle Paul's time, all the brethren were deeply converted. He was perfect. There are no problems. No, they had all kinds of problems back then, too. Paul knew that many would fall away, not sparing the flock, he said. For, I, for, for among yourselves, men will rise up, even among the church, among the elders, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. So many men always want to be important. They want to start their own church. They want to go here and do that, and that's just to show off. I've sensed that through the years, and I've tried to examine, and sincerely, why did I leave? I've told you that story, so I don't want to congratulate myself, but I had to. There wasn't anyone else in that sense doing it the way we're doing it. There wasn't any. I had to. No one was willing or able to step forward at that time, and I realized I could not sleep with myself. I could not live with myself if I let it go on. Mr. Armstrong had said, don't follow my son Ted. It's the church of Ted, not the church of God. He said that several times. And then Gerald Flurry came along and started a church based mainly on himself. As some of you know, some of you come from that church and the harshness there and the dictatorial spirit. We don't have that in this church. Most of you know that. So we had to start a church based on the basic ways of God, the whole counsel of God. But he said, men will come trying to draw away disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years, Notice this went on for three years. I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Was Paul just trying to be melodramatic? I don't think God let this be put in the Bible if he was just trying to show off. He meant it. Paul said, I have had tears come to my eyes. I have cried 
Oh, God, help these people. A lot of them are going to fall away. I remember telling my son Jim's mother several times. He may have heard me. I don't know. But I did tell Margie, I'm sure, 10 to 25 times. I'm afraid that so-and-so and so-and-so may fall away. I see, I saw things in people back there that I could understand. I wasn't telling them, and I didn't hurt them. I didn't tell others. But I was, I was right about 95 or 99% of the time. I won't give you examples. This stuff people were doing, I could see they were carnal. They were selfish, vain, showing off type people. And sure enough, they fell away. So he was trying to warn people. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. We don't come into God's ministry to get wealthy. I had my friends, Jimmy Porter, who became the president of the CPA Association for the whole state of Missouri. I had my friend Ashby Grantham, who became a successful doctor, medical doctor, at Bellevue Hospital in New York. I had Bob Warden, who lived across the street. We called him judge. He became a superior court judge and finally a circuit court judge, very successful. Many of my friends, virtually all of them, made more money than I did. I never lost one bit of sleep. I was not way down below them. I was making about the same grades they were. We were all buddies and went to school together. I came into the church, not frankly to just sacrifice. I have to admit that. I came in because God called me. And I had to be to do what God said. But I got in the ministry because that was what I was supposed to do. But you don't come in the ministry to make money. And anyone who comes in the ministry to do that is going to be terribly, terribly disappointed because our salaries are less than the average person. And I think a lot of you know that. But anyway, we're not supposed to be coveting. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands are provided for my necessities for those who are with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And brethren, we ought to try with all of our hearts to support the weak in God's church. We've recently initiated a certain program, an outreach program to help the people in the community, the poor people and the sick people and the others, not just in the church, but the community as well. And we're trying to reach out more than we have. We should do that. Jesus tells us, you know, you visited me when I was sick. You visited me when I was in prison. You visited me. You helped me. You helped me here. You helped me there. And they said, well, when did we do that? Well, when you did back to some human being. Who's your brother? Read the parable of the Good Samaritan. Every human being is your brother in that larger sense. We can't help every sick or poor person in Africa and Asia. We know that. We can take every dime that we get and dump it all and end it. We'd be gone in a couple of days and they'd be right back in their paganism. But we can help certain ones that are associated with the church, their neighbors, their helps, their family, not just church people, and try to help people every way we can with what we have to do with. Try to support the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And you know, this is wonderful. You don't read this in the Gospels. Somehow God inspired Paul, who was not one of the original apostles, years later to say, this is what Jesus said. One of the special sayings of Jesus we would not have otherwise. It is more blessed to give than to receive. God wants us to be a giver. If you develop that attitude of giving your life to God, 
of giving your personality, of giving your love, of helping them with food and clothing and going out to visit them. I've told you these stories and shouldn't repeat them about how people up in Oregon helped me years ago. Mrs. Close Shepherd, an older deaconess, would write me a letter every week, almost every week. She said, Mr. Meredith, we love your sermon so much. You're such a wonderful preacher. Well, I, was, I appreciated that, but I was already 22 years old. I'd been through college. I wasn't totally dumb. I knew she was trying to encourage me. I realized that. It was still encouraging, but I knew here's my grandmother-type person trying to encourage me. I was not a great preacher. I was to figure that out pretty quick. But every week I got this encouragement from Mrs. Shippert. And every week Mr. and Mrs. Uh, uh, who wrote the uh, Bible study uh, for children, while they would ask me over for dinner at their house. And uh, so that, and they would have a steak. And, uh, and they would be really nice to me. Many others took me in and helped me all over in those early days. I've told you about Mrs. Roy Hammer back in Big Sandy and how she helped everyone all over the place. We had outstanding women as well as men giving and giving, and their memory will never be forgotten in the many of us who were there and saw what they were doing. So Paul get, told them that it's more blessed to give than to receive it. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him. Now, they were like my friend Mario Hernandez, the Latinos, you know, hug you. I told Mario he took me to Mexico a few years ago. My wife was afraid of the violence down there in Mexico City. She didn't want to go on that trip, but it was okay. And the brethren were extremely enthusiastic and I came back and I told Cheryl, I said, Cheryl, I had more hugs and kisses on this trip than I've had any time since our honeymoon. <laughs> all the women came up and kissed me and hugged me, but on the cheek, okay. And some of them were old enough to be my mother almost. So anyway, it worked out okay, but they're very affectionate. But they, they were affectionate, and the Jewish people had that same uh, uh, affection and emotion. They, they fell on Paul's neck and kissed him sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more, and they accompanied him to the ship. Well, these who were kissing him and hugging him were not Jews. Most of them, some were, of course, but some were the Ephesians. They were Greeks, in a sense, and they're very emotional Latino people as well. But it shows the spirit of the church back there. Do you follow me? They had a great deal of warmth, affection, love to one another, and brethren, that's something that God wants more of us to have, have that real spirit of love and service and have a deep affection for one another through Christ in us. Back in Matthew 16, Matthew chapter 16, I want to give you a little bit of the other side of the story here, though. As we grow, and brethren, right now, God is positioning us. I don't want to tell you, Mr. Ames told you about the new network we're going on, reaching new people. We've had several new networks, including one in as he mentioned, the Soviet Union and South Africa and elsewhere that we're suddenly going on and God is working things out to where we're going to have a lot more power. And I mean that, a lot more power even six or eight months from now. This church is growing and we're going to have an impact. A great number of people from another church of God, they're coming apart and many of them are already in touch with us and want to come with us. That's already happening even as I speak. But I don't want to dwell on that either or say things before they happen. But we have many indications the work is going to really grow. When we grow like that and have an impact, that's going to be wonderful. And we'll be excited by it. 
But we all have to remember also what's it going to bring. It is going to bring persecution. Satan doesn't like that. He is going to come after us and we have to really understand. So Jesus here was telling the disciples that he was going to be tried and tested and even crucified. From that time, this is Matthew 16, verse 21. Jesus began to show them that he was go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. He was going to die. Now, Peter was a tough guy. And the, the, the uh, general story, you know, uh, word of mouth, they say, coming down, uh, indicates that Peter was a big man. He apparently was a large, strong man. And he was allowed by God to be the leader. Jesus loved John more. You can tell that in the book of John. He, he sat with John, and John was the one who got the special help from Christ in a certain way. But Peter was the leader. And Christ didn't appoint his buddy John. Peter had more leadership, and God honored that. But Peter spoke up sometimes in a wrong way. He had a lot of impetuousness, too. He said, I'm not going to let that happen. I'll knock their head off, type of thing, probably, when you heard the whole story. And so he raised his voice, apparently, and he took Christ aside and began to rebuke him. He began to rebuke Christ, God, in the flesh. He didn't fully realize that he wasn't converted yet. And he said, far be it from me, Lord, this will not happen to you. I'm going to take care of these guys, you know, he was saying. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. And he didn't mean the devil necessarily. It was the term that could be that adversary. That same word adversary is a term meaning Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men thinking you're a tough guy and you're not going to let this happen. This is my whole purpose for being here, to set the example, to do the work, to, to found the church, to train the ministers, and then to die, to die for the sake of all humanity. You're not going to stop me from that. Then Jesus took his disciples and said, If anyone desires to come after me, if you want to follow Christ, let him deny himself. And brethren, and I want you young people to get this, and I love you, and I've always loved young people because that was my first opportunity in a sense right after the early baptizing tours. I was a teacher in Ambassador College, and I've taught more Ambassador College Bible classes than anyone else. That doesn't make me any better, but I just had that opportunity. I taught about 35 years the freshman kids all the way from 17 to 27, and they were wonderful. I'd come in and they'd be laughing and talking and flirting and carrying on. It was exciting every morning to see the carry, kind of carrying on and being excited. The love of life among the young people. And then I'd get them to sit down. And if I told a joke, they'd explode in laughter. They wanted to be happy. They wanted to be happy. That was inspiring. And that's good. But you young people are even more spoiled than I was, which again does make me any better. But I grew up during the Great Depression. And I saw long lines of men working in the WPA. I saw people lining up for food. I saw my father out of work for a while, and then he was able to get food. And for a while, my granddad was bringing us baskets of food to help us keep going. It was the Great Depression. And right as that depression ended, what was the next part of my life? Poland is attacked by Nazi Germany. The Nazi bombers came over there blasting the Poles. And World War II began. And then finally he began to hear the speech of Sir Winston Churchill. We will fight them in the air, 
We will fight them on the landing grounds. We will fight them in the fields. We will fight them street by street in the cities. And if we fail, even then, our great nations of the empire and the great republic across the seas will rise up. And he said, in effect, we're going to come back. He said over and over, don't give up. As President Kennedy said, Churchill mobilized the English language and sent it into battle. An inspiring speaker. And we'd hear Adolf Hitler's ranting and raving on the, on the shortwave. They'd put it on the American radio every now and then. Israel! Let's drive Israel into the sea. Israel, Israel, they hate the Jews. We're going to kill the Jews, and they did. While I was going to junior high school parties and dances and having a nice time, little kids my age were being tortured over in the death camps in Dachau and Buchenwald and Auschwitz. They were living a different life. But I began to realize that. And so I grew up in a different time than some of you kids. Don't assume it's always going to be happy times. It's not, brethren. As we get bigger, the world is getting worse. And there's an article here. I'd better not take time to read all of it here. We're getting toward the end. But my son Jim, I know you know how great Jim is. <coughs> he, uh, <laughs> he told me, my, he told me I could take five or ten more minutes. He said the announcements are running long, the music is running long. So he, the great Palooka, he told me I could take extra time. So I might take some extra time anyway. But. This is an article in yesterday's Wall Street Journal. They know not what they do. The global war on Christians. There's a book out. Some of you have resources and like to read might get this. The global war on Christians. On October 31st, 2010, a dozen Islamist gunmen stormed the Catholic Cathedral of Our Lady of Salvation in Baghdad. Striking during a service, they butchered some 60 priests and worshipers, mostly in revenge for insults to Christianity, or to Islam, I mean. Ghastly as this crime might be in its own world, mobs sacked churches in Egypt, Nigerian suicide bombers target worshiping congregations, and Eritrea has its hellish concentration camps for who? Christians. Concentration camps for Christians. Quote, Christianity, or Christians today writes John L. Allen, Jr., quote, indisputably is the most persecuted religious body on the planet, end quote. Christians, that is, professing Christians, they don't all understand what we do, but even professing Christianity can get you killed more and more and more all over this earth. What happens with we as true Christians come along and preach the truth which is going to make everybody mad. <laughs> it's going to make the Catholics mad, the Protestants mad, the Muslims mad. It ain't going to be funny. You know what I mean? We are going to be persecuted, my brethren. And I hope that you young people can understand it. Some of the old people who suffered, it might be easier on them. But some of you have grown up in a happy, happy time and you haven't gone through that. So I hope you can understand. Remember what Jesus said. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Verse 25, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If you lose your life because you are giving your life to God and doing God's work, you will find your life. You will live forever and ever and God will cause it to work for good. But what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? 
or what will it a man give in exchange for his soul for the son of man will come in the glory of his father with his angels and then he will reward each according to his works we're saved we're given salvation we're given eternal life through the blood of jesus christ if we repent and turn from our sins and do a little bit of growing but the degree of reward we have whether we're over five cities or ten cities or a whole nation or maybe later a whole planet that depends on our works, how much we overcome, how much we accomplish, how much we give ourselves to God to be a tool in God's hands, how much we follow Christ's example of doing the work. That is our reason for being, getting God's message out, preparing for God's kingdom in every way we can with every ability we have, with everything we have. That will declare, bring forth the, the result, the ultimate reward we will have, our job. So I hope all of us can understand that, and that's very exciting. So whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Some of us in the church try to save our lives. We try to make everything comfortable for us, and we want to live the good life right now. Well, it's not wrong to do that to a degree, but it must not be done to in any way take from the impact we or the work can have on the world. That has got to come first. If I have to be thrown in jail... For several years, that's got to come first. Did Paul live a wonderful life going around and having people praise him? No. Most of the last five years of Paul's life were spent in jail. Read it in the book of Acts. Read it. He was right there, you know, two years in Caesarea, three months on a prison ship, two years plus, of course, as you read, in his own hired house, and then back for at least several months, probably a better part of the year, as a real uh, prisoner in a, in a civil sense, a criminal in the second imprisonment, about five years a prisoner. He said several times in Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, remember my chain. Remember I'm going around with a ball and chain between my ankles. Remember my chain. Paul did not go around with a happy time going to church dances and parties and picnics. Remember my chain. And yet he said, rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. If you read Philippians chapter 4, he loved God. He had Christ in him. He knew it was going to turn out for good. But he also had to say, remember my chain. He gave his life to God and he did not lose it. He will have eternal life forever and ever and ever as the star, as long as the stars will shine, because he did that. And we've got to be willing to go through, as we say, hell and high water. We've got to be willing to go through trials and tests and beatings and threats and persecutions and prison. We've got to be willing to do that, brethren. And young people, you're going to have to suffer to a degree before you're in God's kingdom. I'm not trying to frighten you. I want you to be brave. During the Second World War, a lot of our young men my age are just a few years old or volunteered. And I remember Jeff Farron back. He was just a little older than me, our college, I mean, our high school football hero. And they were allowed to volunteer and get in the armed forces at age 17 and a half with their parents okay. And he did that. And pretty soon, while the war was still going, I was in my senior year by then, they sent back his body. His body came back and they had a memorial service right in the Joplin High School and they had the trumpets and the Ford trumpets way off. It was a very moving occasion. 
Our football hero's body was lying there, got killed out near Japan somewhere. He gave his life for his country. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship in God's record book. We have our names written in the book of life. And we've got to be willing to suffer for the kingdom of God, for the work of God, for the glory of God. Because we are Christians. Because we mean it. We understand the purpose of life and we know what's really important. We want our lives to count for something. Not just to drift along. Not just to join the club and a rah-rah club and just be there when times are good. But to be there when times are bad. To hang on, to sacrifice, to drive ourselves, to make it work. So I hope all of us can really understand that, brethren, and know what God wants. President John F. Kennedy had a very idealistic group of young people, thousands of them, thousands back then, joined the Peace Corps. And these young people were willing to go off to Asia, to China, to India, to Afghanistan, to various nations in Africa, Central and South America, to help those nations better in the Peace Corps because this charismatic young American president appealed to them. We have a Peace Corps, but our Peace Corps is going to bring peace over all the earth as long as the moon shall shine. As you read back in the 70th Psalm, as long as the moon shall shine, there will be the glory of Christ and the kingdom of God. It will never end. Ours is the real Peace Corps to bring love and joy and peace and prosperity everything right when Christ's kingdom comes. And we are the advance guard. We are the troops that go ahead. We are the commandos. We have to hit the beach first. And some of us will die in the process. Are we willing? Are you young people willing? Some of you will have to study the Bible more, not just drift along, but to read this book and get the Bible correspondence course and go through it stage by stage. Don't just read it, study it, write out the scriptures, drill yourself on it. Take some living university classes. Drill yourself on those things. Know this book and have Christ living in you. And all of us are older the same way. We can be part of that contingent that's going to hit the beach. We can be part of that contingent that will get out in the world and have an impact on this world. And God will bless us forever if we're willing to do that. We are God's army and we've got to be willing to be true soldiers of Jesus Christ. So you young people right here, you all you young people, you're needed in the army of Christ, the army of the living God. And God wants us to be that way. But we're all going to be tested. It won't be easy. We will be tested. Turn back, if you would, to 1 Peter. I'm going to turn back at this time, if you would, to 1 Peter. And uh, I can find it myself here. 1 Peter chapter 4. We often read this, but it's very meaningful, frankly, when you understand the time we're in right now. First Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not make it strange concerning the fiery trial. Notice what he calls it, a fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened. How could we have this trouble? How come Mr. Meredith is in jail? How come Mr. Ames is beaten up? You know, how come this or that would happen? Some might say, how come your local minister is beaten up or is a, a firebomb comes through into his living room and they all have to flee and the brethren have to house him or has to run him out of town? That might happen someday to some of you in local churches. That's not strange. Don't think it's strange, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings 
if you do it for the kingdom of God's sake, it is real. It did happen over and over in the book of Acts. It's going to happen again. That when his glory is revealed, you also may be glad with exceeding joy if you reproach for the name or name of Christ because you believe in Jesus Christ. You are a Christian. You want Christ to live his life in you. Blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed. They're going to curse God, but on your part, he is glorified. And most of even you younger people, I know I have some younger sons, and they're heavy into the Internet much more. They've grown up with that. And you see on the stuff on the Internet I have never, ever used to see or hear about. it. They just put pornography out there and everything you can imagine. But you know the stuff that's going on out there, every kind of bestiality, every kind of men marrying men and men women marrying women, and perverted sex, perverted crimes where they torture people in an unusual way, absolutely vile things. And brethren, it really is getting worse and worse and worse every five years. It's really growing exponentially. And many articles have come forth indicating that in the mainstream newspapers and magazines. Our own Charlotte Journal has said that, Charlotte Observer, I mean, and the Wall Street Journal has said that many times in articles these men who've lived longer, as I have, that stuff would never have happened back at our time. If someone in Joplin, Missouri, or Kansas City, or Chicago, or New York had said even 30 or 50 years ago, let alone when I was growing up, 60 or 70 years ago, we're going to let some men marry men, people would look at them, are you, an animal? are you out of your mind? Someone tried to do that, we'd have run them right out of town. Literally, I mean, they would have been run out of town so quick they couldn't believe what happened to them. And yet today, the President of the United States get up and says there's no problem. Senator so-and-so says there's no problem. The Supreme Court says there's no problem. All these leaders of the world say, so what? State after state is legalizing it. And even some Utah judge, if you read this morning, has said it's okay now in the state of Utah where the Mormons are. Who does this? It's not the legislator. Most of them are Mormons. It's a judge. These activist judges get there in there and try to make laws and take it into their own hand and overrule the will of the people. But God is allowing that to happen, and we're going down the tube faster than most of you young people realize. It's amazing how fast it has happened. So the end of this age could happen in eight or nine years. The, 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 the tribulation could begin. could begin in five or six years, I hope it is. But the way things are going could easily happen in eight or ten years as these nations come together, as these nations see America as a deadbeat nation. We won't pay our debts back. The Obamacare and the various lies of his administration are beginning to turn off nations around this world. Our prestige as a nation is going straight down the tubes. The nations of the world are turning against us faster than I have ever seen in 83 years. And I've been watching the news for about 13 of those years a whole lot. I started reading the news, frankly, when I was 10 or 12 years old. Why? I was a reader, but the Second World War was going, and it was exciting. Every day on the front page of the Joplin Globe, Patton's tanks are heading toward the Rhine or something like that. So it was exciting. It was more exciting than Buck Rogers and Little Orphan Annie and, and all these uh, cartoon characters. It was real. And it was happening in front of my eyes. So I read about it every day. You're listening. You're watching things like that. But it doesn't hit you in the same way because it's happening. The, 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 the world makes fun of God's way. They think it's okay. But a whole way of life is being foisted off on you young people 
that is absolutely damnable, worthy of damnation, worthy of, of, of condemnation from God himself, and he is going to shake this nation and shake the people in this nation such as they have never been shaken before. It really is, brethren, and you young people, I hope you get it. These people aren't getting away with it. You think it's a long time. No, five or ten years is not very long. A thousand years are like yesterday is when it has passed. I read that a few minutes ago. He may have let it go another five or ten years, but he's going to shake the teeth out of the people here that are doing that stuff. They are not going to smile and smirk at God forever, believe me. So we've got to get the message out to those who are willing to listen and be on God's team and be willing to go through trials and tests. Rejoice to the extent that we are partakers of Christ's sufferings and have that attitude. And now, brethren, turn with me, if you would, to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians, at this point, chapter 3, one of my favorite passages in the Bible, and I'm sure for many of us, beginning in verse 7, <clears throat> Paul has been telling how he was circumcised the eighth day, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He had all these things. But he says in verse 7, but what things were gained to me, these I counted lost for Christ. But indeed, I count all things lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. All the high school trophies for basketball or football or track or boxing or the money we've made or the fame we've made as a singer or a teacher or an athlete, it's nice but it's absolute rubbish compared to Christ. Absolute rubbish compared to Christ living his life within us and us being willing and able to live forever and ever and ever. That's what it's all about. That's our goal. We've got to drive toward that goal and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, just based on letter of the law, Old Testament rituals, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. For I know him and the power of his resurrection. My wife will come back. Dick Armstrong will come back. Mrs. Herbert Armstrong will come back. Mr. Herbert Armstrong will come back. That trumpet will sound again and the dead will rise. We must know and know that we know through all these prophecies that are happening, these specific things that God has said that he has done and is doing and will do, there is a real God a real God of power, and we want to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. We've got to attain that. Make it. Make it happen. And be willing to suffer for it if we have to. Not that I've already attained. We haven't got it made or already perfect. But I press on that I may have lay hold of that for which, I, or which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. He said, I press on. You don't float into the kingdom of God. You drive yourself into the kingdom of God. You yield to God and cry out to God with tears in your eyes. Christ prayed with great, with vehement tears and crying. You read it back in Hebrews chapter 5. Vehement tears, perhaps shaking and bawling. Father, I've got to make it. Help me, help me. If I don't make it, the whole world's not going to be saved. He cried out to God with tears, vehement tears and crying. Our Savior, He did that. Don't be afraid to put yourself in it. Don't be afraid to go all out for God. If there's one thing to go all out for, some of the kids your age, you young people, they yell and scream at some rock star. They yell and scream at some basketball star. They yell and scream at nothing. 
Here's the great God who gives you life and breath. He's about to intervene in human affairs and bring back a whole new kingdom. Every mountain and every island is going to be shaken out of its place. The heavenly signs will occur. The sun and the moon and the stars will be shaken. All these things will happen. It's going to be powerful. You serve that great God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel, the God of Jesus Christ. He's going to intervene and he's going to give you reward if you really go all out and press toward the kingdom of God. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. One thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind. Yes, we've all made mistakes. We've lost loved ones. We've suffered. Don't dwell on that. Forgetting those things that are behind and reaching forward, forward toward those things that are ahead, I press, I push. And as my coach, Russ Kaminsky, used to tell us, drive, drive, drive. <laughs> that was his favorite word. And we had a championship team. Springfield was bigger in population. Kansas City was bigger, the other cities, but we usually beat them all. We had a wonderful coach. He told us to drive. And we've got to do it in the right way. It's not all on us. I know you know that. It's got to be Christ in us. But we've got to do our part. But he said, I press toward all this goal. I press toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. So we've got to press toward that goal. As I've said, brethren, and you young people, you want to get excited about something, please learn, have a hero a real hero that's absolutely vital and exciting in your eyes. And it should be, if you learn to read this book, you learn to go over the stories in the Bible, he can become more and more and more real to you. The Christ of the Gospels, but who's the Christ who intervened back in Moses' time? Who's the God who intervened and stopped the Red Sea? Who's the one who intervened and caused all these things to happen? That God was Christ. That rock you know, 1 Timothy chapter 10, verse 4. That rock, the rock of Israel was Christ. Christ is the one who did all those things. He is our hero. He is our God. He is our example. He's the one who's to live his life in us. So if he becomes real to us and we can get generally excited and stirred up and go all out, so I'm going to have Christ in me. I'm going to let him live his life in me. I'm not going to do it half-heartedly. I'm going to make it into the kingdom of God and I'll go out with all my heart, with all my mind, with all my soul. That's what God wants, brethren, nothing half-hearted. So I hope that you can live that kind of life, and I hope that all of you can have that goal in your mind. Make your life count for something. Make it really count for something, now and forever. And as Winston Churchill said during the darkest days of World War II, when the bombs were coming down on London, never, 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 never give up.